Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Well, thank you for coming. Coming up the hill on a cold evening like this and after a depressing (laughs) day yesterday. Uh, So, yeah, I'm going to talk about uh, our aim to develop a safe, effective and hopefully a single-dose vaccine against uh, tuberculosis. And I'm going to start off with introducing TB a little bit and the history of TB. Uh, And I thought I'd also put in a little bit of history about vaccines to just give you an idea of how we got to the vaccines that we have today, and especially the BCG vaccine. Um, I'm going to also highlight some of the issues that we have with this current vaccine that's available. And then I'll introduce you to the technology that we have developed in our laboratory. And then I'll finish off with some uh, ideas about where this could go in the future. So yeah, tuberculosis has been in the news quite a bit. I'm sure you've seen that. Um, There's been um, uh, quite some headlines on the fact that we don't have enough of the vaccine. Some of the producers start stop making them. So this is a human vaccine, of course, although there's not much difference, I'll explain later, between the human and the vaccine that we could use in cattle. Um, the other thing, of course, is that the British beef industry is suffering quite a lot from this disease. And uh, we have slaughtered many cattle because of this disease. Uh, This year or last year, 28,000 cattle were slaughtered because of the bovine TB. So it's a TB. So it's a serious uh, issue. Then, of course, a lot of people are worried about the badgers and the badger cull. Um, um, And uh, especially Brian May, of course, is leading uh, that uh, effort. Uh, The extension of the badger cull is horribly cruel. Uh, I agree. Uh, We should be able to come up with another solution so we could save the badgers as well as the cows, of course. And then, of course, there's a big question. Are badgers really the cause of the spread of TB in cattle? Um, It's not a new disease. It's an old disease with uh, a variety of names. uh, The the Greeks uh, call it thesis, uh, which uh, kind of uh, translates into wasting disease. And of course, we know it as consumption, uh, similar to what the Greeks called it. Uh, You slowly waste away, you're slowly consumed by this disease. So it's quite an adequate name for it. And of course, there's other names like the the white death or the the graveyard cough. Uh, And who can forget the closing scenes from uh, Puccini's La Boheme or Verdi's La Traviata, where Mimi is struck by disease, or Violetta, of course, and the other one. Uh, So there are clear images where uh, tuberculosis has been used in in these plays. And it has uh, struck quite a few people uh, like 
Moliere who died uh, on stage while performing and got a serious cough fit and a hemorrhage and died there. You can easily imagine perhaps Chopin while writing his last final work coughing over his piano. <clears throat> Anton Chekhov uh, suffered, suffered uh, from the disease uh, all his life. So there's quite a, a few uh, luminaries that we know. The Brontes, they died of uh, tuberculosis, George Orwell and, and John Keats. And the list is quite long of people who suffered from this disease. And of course, we, the list of these luminaries is, is quite long. And, and the most recently, Vivian Lee, of course, uh, well known for Gone. Uh, uh, what's it? Gone. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that's fairly recent uh, in, in 67. Uh, but we shouldn't forget that this is the disease of the poor. And it's a disease that is very common in uh, conditions of poverty, not only then in Victorian days, but also now. Uh, so we shouldn't forget that. Uh, this, these people that suffer the most from this disease. It's an ancient disease. It was first described uh, a long time ago by uh, this uh, Babylonian king in, on the, in cuneiform uh, text on this uh, stone pillar. Uh, but it was already uh, uh, later also described by, by Homer in his uh, well-known uh, Odyssey, where he described it, uh, persons lying in sickness uh, and slowly wasting away. So clearly this wasting disease is an ancient disease and has been with us for a very, very uh, long time. Uh, even longer than this, Egyptian mummies have been shown to have suffered from the disease. And uh, you might wonder how can you tell from an Egyptian mummy whether they suffered from it because uh, uh, often the lung tissue is, is, is not available. But there are other signs in the body where you can see that people may have suffered from this disease. And especially in the spine, you can see how the bone is slowly destroyed when the disease actually hits outside of the lungs. Uh, and this is a, a, another deformity that is quite often seen in tuberculosis is called Potts disease where you get this, this deformity of the spine and that's a, a clear-cut sign of uh, tuberculosis. We can even go further back. This is a, an, Iron Age, an Iron Age grave from Dorset where again these telltale signs were found uh, in the spine showing that this is an ancient disease. Uh, we can even go back further. This is a Neolithic grave that was seen just off the coast of Haifa in Israel, 9,000 years old, and uh, the skeleton has clear signs of the, the, the disease. And it's these finds, but also the uh, studies uh, in the lab looking uh, at the DNA of this disease that can tell us that this disease probably developed first in Africa and then spread while we were kind of exploring other uh, uh, corners of the world. And then from that point on, it traveled all across the world. So it's, it's an old 
disease. And it's hitched a ride when the early humans left Africa 50,000 years ago. If we look at the evolutionary tree of the disease, we can see that it even goes back a lot further and may have developed uh, 2.5 million years ago. And, of course, uh, if we then look back in the human tree, we get to somewhere near Homo habilis or Homo erectus, who may have already suffered from the disease so uh, long ago. And there is evidence, indeed, and you can see here a piece of a skull, and here you can see the uh, occipital bone, where there's clear uh, damage of the bone uh, caused, probably caused, by a disease like tuberculosis. And this is half a million years ago. So it's an ancient disease. It's not from the Middle Ages uh, of the Vic or the Victorian days. It goes back a lot further. A few facts of tuberculosis, if you're not familiar with it. Um, and this is, uh, what I'm talking about here is human tuberculosis. I will talk about bovine tuberculosis a little bit. <clears throat> uh, and there's not much difference, as you will see. These two bugs are very, very similar. So tuberculosis is an infectious disease caused by this organism called mycobacterium tuberculosis. It mostly affects the lungs, but I've already mentioned it can spread further in the body. Most infections are latent and do not cause any symptoms. So you can carry this disease for a very long time without any symptoms. 10% of these latent infections then progress to active disease. And it's really hard to fight because this organism can hide from our immune system. And I'll explain that a little bit, how that works. Uh, to show how serious this disease is, it's, it's in the top 10 of causes of death in the world. In 2015, 10, over 10 million people fell ill with TB. And almost 2 million people died of the disease. So it's still a very serious disease. And I've already mentioned that it's a disease of the poor. So you see 95% of death occur in low and middle income mm -hmm. countries. And topping the list of countries is India, followed by Indonesia, China, and a whole range of countries where, of course, there is, a still, uh, there is still a lot of uh, poverty. So it's a serious disease. And even though we have been able to get the numbers down dramatically, as you can see here, this is in the UK. In the UK, we still have quite a lot of cases, 6,500 cases in the UK, in humans. We've brought down the numbers dramatically, and this is not because of the vaccine, I can tell you. This is because of improved living conditions. Uh, the numbers have come down dramatically and almost uh, kind of reached zero. We can still see that. Uh, there are still a significant number of cases that need to be tackled. And uh, these are cases, of course, of active disease. We don't know how many people actually carry the bug around latently. Um, this is an interesting uh, uh, map where you see that most of the cases actually occur in London. So there are poorer areas in London 
where there's still quite a lot of TB. Around six people develop symptoms of TB every day in London. So it's still a significant disease. Quite a few actually here in the south and the west. And I'll come back to that, why I think this might be the case, why there's still so many uh, people suffering from uh, TB. Yeah. Uh, in Europe, Britain is still one of the leading countries in the sense of uh, numbers of disease. Of course, topped by uh, Portugal. And a lot of that is from immigrants that come from Africa. They bring the disease. Uh, and we don't know exactly how many that is, but we can see from the numbers in Portugal uh, that uh, they are still very high compared to the rest of, uh, of, of uh, Europe. Now back to uh, bovine TB. <clears throat> so what's the difference between bovine TB and human TB? There's almost no difference. If you look at the DNA of Mycobacterium bovis, it's almost identical to that of Mycobacterium tuberculosis. So it's almost the same thing. You almost can't make that difference between the two species. Similarly, it infects the lungs and mainly affects the lungs. And again, most infections do not cause any symptoms. A big problem is uh, currently that 20% of the herds have this latent infection that goes undetected. And that is a big problem. Even with the skin test, the tuberculin skin test, you cannot detect that 20%. So 20% goes undetected. And that's a huge problem. Just imagine that one in five herds actually has the disease, even though you can't see it. So that makes it really difficult to get rid of it. Uh, of course, we're not allowed to vaccinate because European legislation tells us not to vaccinate because we won't be able to tell the difference between infected and vaccinated. And because of that, we wouldn't be able to uh, transport uh, cows uh, across the border. So there are some serious uh, <clears throat> problems still. Um, if we go back to this tree of life, this kind of evolutionary tree of, of Mycobacterium, uh, we can see that uh, Mycobacterium bovis, the, uh, the infects cattle, actually evolved from the human form, so not the other way around. So human form was there first, and then the cattle version of it evolved later. Initially, we thought that this happened when we started uh, domesticating cows, which is probably about 10,000 years ago. But if we look at this evolution tree, it goes back a lot further. This could either mean that we started domesticating cows earlier than we thought, uh, but clearly there was some uh, cross-contamination happening already there. Um, again, to show how big this problem is, of course, it's still big in humans, but in cattle, uh, this costs us a lot of money, $3 billion annually. And in the UK, it's still a huge problem. Uh, over half a million cattle have been slaughtered since 2001. 
And in the last 10 years, we spent 500 million pounds on the problem. So it's a huge problem that needs to be resolved. And if we don't take any action in the next decade, it will cost us 1 billion. Uh, and you can see that although there are some dips, the number of cattle slaughtered due to bovine TB is still on the rise. So it's a huge issue. Um, just to give you uh, an, an overview of where it all happens in the UK, you can see that here in the West, uh, there's quite a lot of it, and it starts spreading quite significantly, and we're reached 2010. You can see this area is the main affected area where we find positive TB. And now I'm going to compare that to the map I've shown of human TB. And I don't know if I could see, show that. No, it's not there. But actually, if you remember the slide that I've showed you before of human TB, I mentioned that in the south and the west, there is a significant uh, number of people suffering from it. And this could easily be because it's uh, actually uh, coming from the cows and infecting people. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll explain that also a, a little bit later. So tuberculosis, what is it? I'll give you a, a few details here. It, 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 I already mentioned it's the disease of the lungs, but it, it can, of course, travel to other tissues in the body. You can see a, a, an x-ray of the chest of a man suffering from tuberculosis, uh, and it is really a serious wasting disease. The big problem is that tuberculosis is almost undetectable by the immune system. And normally the first thing that a bacterium encounters in our body are, the, are cells called macrophages. And you see one here. You see, here's a real one, a, uh, an electron micrograph of a real one. And you can see its tentacles already uh, grabbing the bacteria to just eat it up. Because macrophage means big eaters and they eat bacteria. And they're very, very good at this and, and killing the bacteria. Um, but what happens is as soon as a big eater touches any of these bacteria, the bacteria start to manipulate the macrophages and stop it from eating the bacteria. And they actually can live and multiply within these infected macrophages and uh, use up their resources, uh, especially in lipids. So these macrophages are full of lipids and the bacteria eat those. And they can sit in the lungs and just consume these immune cells. And the big problem is that the rest of the immune system doesn't see the TB. And that's why it can stick around in the body for a very long time without being noticed. Uh, to give you a, a, a brief overview of our immune system, uh, you can see how big the problem is when it doesn't get any further than the macrophages. I already mentioned these big eaters, the macrophages. They need to see the bacterium first, eat the bacterium, and then talk to some other cells, uh, including the T cells, from the thymus, 
And these T cells can help a group of other cells from the bone marrow, called B cells, uh, to make antibodies against TB. So it's a crucial uh, encounter with these big eaters. This big eater needs to eat TB and until the T cells and the B cells to make antibodies very quickly. And these antibodies, of course, are the, 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 the body's pitchforks that then bind to the bacterium and kill it. There's another group of T cells, which are called the T killer cells, killer T cells, that are also very important in uh, gobbling up the bacteria. Of course, the big problem with TB is that it all gets stuck here. The bacterium is eaten up and lives in these macrophages, and the rest of the immune system doesn't have a clue what's actually going on. So that's a huge uh, problem. Um, and you can see these accumulation of macrophages in the lungs. These are kind of really early drawings where you can see these granulomas building up where you have these white blood cells trying to eat up the bacterium and get stuck with these bacterium. So you can see accumulations of these granulomas are also called tuberculous, tubercles. That's where tuberculosis comes from. First seen by uh, this German guy who spent most of his life in the Netherlands uh, who first saw these tubercles. Uh, and slowly but surely, uh, you get an accumulation of the bacterium and then uh, locally it starts to spread and slowly waste away the lungs. It's a very slow process and a, a, a very devastating process. Uh, and this disease process is exactly the same in cattle. Cattle suffers from this as well. And you can see that here, here is a lung from a cow and you can see these granulomas these accumulations of these white blood cells, these macrophages that can't eat up the bacterium. So serious transmission is also very similar between uh, bacteria, uh, <clears throat> between the bacteria. So um, mycobacterium tuberculosis is spread through uh, sneezing and coughing. Um, that's a, a very uh, good way of, of transmitting. And in cows, it's exactly the same. If a cow sneezes, uh, other cows will get it. But we can get it too. Because 10% of human TB is due to bovine TB. Uh, so animals transmit between animals by drinking milk. Actually, we can get it too if we don't use pasteurized milk. We'll catch the disease as well. But they inhale it, they can inhale it from uh, sneezing or from carcasses of animals or their excretions. <clears throat> so if a farmer spreads muck on the land, that is potentially also a source of tuberculosis and actually a very, potentially a very important source for the wildlife to pick it up. So actually cow muck could actually transmit it to wildlife. So this is also serious. 10% of human TB is due to bovine TB, and that's because they are so, so very uh, similar. Uh, this is where the map comes in, oh, I remember. Uh, so you can see how it's uh, clearly spreading a lot, bovine TB here in the west. And if you compare that to this map here, you can see it overlaps 
a lot here. So I suspect there's a lot of bovine TB transmitted to human, uh, to humans. Uh, what are the treatments? I'm not going to talk about the treatments uh, a lot because I'm mainly going to focus on, on the vaccine. Uh, but one of the ways of treating TB was bed rest. Didn't help at all, but I guess it was the only thing that was available. And here you see a sanatorium for tuberculosis patients in, the, in nice places in the world where there was fresh air. Uh, people tried a lot. Uh, they tried treating patients with heavy metals, with dyes and gold salts and garlic, and none of that really worked. Uh, in the 1940s, we started using uh, antibiotics, uh, and we started adding some antibiotics. And in these days, and this is a treatment that dates back to the 1980s, so it hasn't developed dramatically, we use this four-drug cocktail to treat active uh, TB. Um, as I mentioned, I don't want to um, uh, stick too long, stick around too long. Uh, I want to move on to uh, vaccines and what is a vaccine. A vaccine is an antigenic substance prepared from the causative agent of a disease uh, used to provide uh, immunity against that disease. That's a really kind of brief uh, explanation of what a vaccine is. And I think it's important to give you a, a short overview of the history of vaccines uh, because it will explain a lot about the current vaccines. Of course, we used to think that these infectious diseases that spread over the world were caused by uh, God because we've sinned. Um, um, but later, uh, a range of investigators found actually that they were caused by these really small animal kills, as Anthony van Leeuwenhoek uh, called them, who saw these bacteria for the first time in 1683 when he scraped a bit of plaque off his uh, teeth and spread it on a microscope, and he could see that. Uh, this is his microscope. It's a tiny thing. I've seen a, a replica of it. Um, People have tried to kind of uh, replicate his findings, but couldn't actually do it with his microscope. But of course, of the drawings that he's uh, given us, uh, we clearly know that he, has, he must have been seeing these uh, kind of things. Um, and the first vaccinations were actually uh, linked to smallpox. Smallpox, of course, uh, a serious disease. Uh, and the earliest... Uh, um, reports of vaccinations come from the UK, where this farmer, for instance, su successfully inoculated his wife and two young sons with cowpox. Uh, the British Army showed that uh, the horse-mounted troops were less infected by smallpox, for instance, uh, than the infantry. And I'm using smallpox here because the discovery of the uh, tuberculosis vaccine and smallpox are closely linked. And in 1791, uh, this German teacher successfully vaccinated a nobleman and his three children uh, with cowpox lymph. This was all before uh, the well-known Edward Jenner. Uh, I think the most important thing that Edward Jenner did is he reported it in medical journals, uh, even though some other people did it before him. Uh, but of course, you, you can't claim 
if you don't uh, kind of write about it. So I think he deserves the claim. Uh, what he saw is that milkmaids rarely got this disease. And they had blisters from cowpox they caught from the cows. So there, again, there's a similarity between tuberculosis and cowpox uh, and smallpox. Uh, of course, he took some material from uh, cowpox and inoculated this uh, young boy, James Phipps, which didn't contract smallpox after being vaccinated. So a great achievement, I think, by Edward Jenner. Here you can see Jenner and James Phipps <coughs> uh, being uh, 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 commemorated. So smallpox, of course, is, is different from, from uh, tuberculosis. It's, it's a viral disease, a serious viral disease, and it's now been completely eradicated because of these uh, vaccinations. Uh, um, but since cowpox comes from cows, uh, we actually have uh, the word vaccination. So vaca means cow, and vaccination, of course, comes from uh, the use of that word. Um, following on from this research, there were two really important microbiologists that took vaccination to where we are now, actually. Uh, and one of them is Louis Pasteur. Here's a few pictures of, uh, that I took on my holidays in Dole in France, in the, in the French uh, Jura. Uh, there's a picture of his house. And this is a museum now. It's really worthwhile uh, uh, visiting if it's a bit too far away uh, for you. Uh, I think it's also very good uh, to go to see Jenner's house, which is a museum as well, which is a lot closer and really worthwhile uh, visiting if you have the chance uh, to go. It's a great uh, museum. Um, but Pasteur was the first person who artificially weakened diseases, uh, and especially started with chicken cholera. And there's a little anecdote there I can tell you is how this all came about. He was studying chicken cholera, and he had lots of chicken in his backyard, and he would infect them with cholera and then see how the disease progressed. Uh, he wanted to go on holiday and told his assistant if he could please carry on uh, culturing uh, the, uh, the cholera bacteria. And, uh, and he went off on holiday. The assistant hadn't told him that he was going on holiday too. So he disappeared and the bacteria just were left behind and all died. Uh, Pasteur came back and he was outraged and he thought, well, maybe there's still some life in these bacteria, so he started injecting his uh, new chickens, uh, but they didn't get the disease. Uh, he was, a, uh, uh, again, annoyed by, by that whole affair. But then he noticed as soon as he got some new chicken cholera bacteria and he started injecting these chickens that were inoculated with the dead bacterium, that they didn't get the disease. So this is the first example of a weakened bacterium uh, that didn't cause the disease. And he called that, after vaccination, of course, vaccin, vaccine. And he did this for anthrax and rabies. The next big breakthrough came uh, from Germany. Uh, Robert Koch, he actually found out what the causative agents were of these diseases. He discovered that anthrax was caused by a specific bacterium that he could see in his microscope. 
and tuberculosis was caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis. So you can see how <clears throat> all these discoveries led on to understanding other diseases and how potentially we may be able to use uh, this information to develop new vaccines. He is actually very important. This, this, his postulates are still really crucial uh, in microbiology, um, which state that you have to be able to identify a bacterium from a diseased animal and not being able to see it in a healthy animal. You have to be able to culture these bacteria and then be able to inoculate another uh, uh, animal that gets the disease. And then again, from this dead animal, you should be able to identify the bacteria and culture them. So these are his really important postulates that we still use for any new uh, infectious disease. He also was the first one to develop a vaccine in 1890, and it's called Cox tuberculin. Uh, unfortunately, it turned out not to be effective. Uh, quite a few people died from it, uh, and it uh, definitely put a big blemish on his work, but he still got the Nobel Prize for all the other achievements that he has uh, uh, had. Uh, so it's not effective as a treatment for TB, but it's an important diagnostic that we still use. So the tuberculin test, the skin test that we use in cows and humans, is based on this cocktail that he developed. <clears throat> and here you can see that tuberculin skin test, you can see, still use that in humans. It's also called the Montu test, after Charles Montu. And you can see we do that uh, for cattle as well. We use that to see whether cattle or people have the disease. Uh, there's a few issues with this. Um, uh, the problem is, of course, um, that it still will be positive uh, when you've had a previous vaccination. So this is the big problem with this test. You can't tell the difference between the disease uh, or the vaccination. So a serious problem. <clears throat> um, of course, people were really keen on seeing whether they could use this tuberculin as a potential vaccine. Um, uh, it has all the active substances in there that come from the bacterium. Uh, of course, there are some other issues here that there are the media that the bacteria grew on, and he's had some substances put in uh, that weaken the bacteria. So it's, it's a really kind of strange cocktail of things that we really uh, don't know uh, how they work. Uh, and just to imagine what these bacteria were grown on that are in this cocktail. He used potato slices to grow bacteria. He used bread uh, to grow bacteria on. And he also used uh, media with cooked meat in there. So these early vaccines were quite a, an interesting mixture of, of things. And actually, they still, they still are. Um, the first really active vaccine was uh, developed by Calmat and Guérin. And the, the, the vaccine is still called Bacille Calmet Guérin. Um, and you've probably, many of you, had this vaccine when you were a child. 
So you've been vaccinated with Mycobacterium bovis, not tuberculosis. Uh, it's a Mycobacterium that was grown on this potato medium. So it's a quite odd mix of potato and bacterium. And to make it even more interesting, they added some ox bile to make it more soluble. And that's the vaccine you've had. Interestingly, this vaccine hasn't changed at all. It's still this really ancient method of developing a vaccine. Uh, this was first uh, trialed in cattle. And in 1921, the first human trials took place. This led to a huge disaster in Germany, uh, where there was, for some reason, still some live bacterium in there, which killed a lot of uh, people and um, uh, stopped vaccinations uh, for a little while. But in the 1940s, the World, uh, World Health Organization took it on again. And in the 1950s, there were major trials in the UK, and we still use it today. And it's not a great vaccine made from potato medium, a bit of bacterium from a cow, and some ox bile. Alchemy, I think, would be the best word to call this. This is the only vaccine that is available. Uh, this was used since the 1920s and is still used today. There's a, a few varieties because uh, uh, several companies make these things. So Pasteur makes his own uh, little cocktail. Uh, there's a Danish uh, version of the... Uh, that's the one actually that stopped uh, production and caused the shortage in the, uh, um, in the vaccine. And the old Glaxo vaccine is really the old... Uh, from the Pasteur labs. So nothing has changed, and that is the big issue here, I think. That's why we need a better vaccine. It's data technology, it's not very well defined, and its effectiveness is very low. It's higher in children, but in adults it's really low. And specificity, uh, it's probably not very specific. So if you would imagine TB as being this really wild, aggressive, disease-causing bacterium. We've been culturing it for a very long time, and that has turned into this, with still some features of the original uh, bacterium, but it's been cultured outside of the body, and it's lost many of its characteristics, uh, and, and therefore this vaccine is not appropriate, we think, for being used. The other big problem is we can't distinguish between inf in, uh, infected and vaccinated. Okay, this is a long story, but what is our technology? Okay, I'll tell you. I mentioned uh, the body's army. So it's really important to have all aspects of our army fighting the disease. The big eaters, the T cells, the B cells, and the antibodies. And actually there's another part of our immune system that I haven't spoken about, which is part of the innate immune system, uh, which I call the heat-seeking missiles. They are always on the ready as soon as you have a bacterium and it's being picked up, it's still swimming around, then these heat-seeking missiles uh, torpedo uh, the bacterium. And these heat-seeking missiles are called complement. 
Uh, and what they do is they, when they find a bacterium, uh, the, the warhead attaches to the bacterium and it kind of blows up the bacterium. It also tags the bacterium and becomes an important adjuvant. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, adjuvants. Uh, adjuvants are substances that enhance the body's immune response. And there's quite a few of these, and you may be familiar with some of them. Alum, every vaccine, uh, contains these metal salts. We don't know how they work. Uh, but why use these if the body has its own adjuvant? And the work we've done in the lab is based on one breakthrough uh, that we published in Science five years ago, where we uh, uh, finally understood how these B cells that make antibodies can recognize an antigen with the help of what is that leftover of the warhead of this heat-seeking missile. We also found that recognition of the antigen together with this warhead boosts the immune system 10,000-fold and actually improves immune memory. And that's all based on the structure we discovered. So that's one big discovery that we did. Uh, we also uh, um, uh, worked on Staphylococcus aureus, and Staphylococcus aureus compared to uh, TB uh, is a very aggressive bacterium in the sense of uh, that it can actually activate the immune system by making toxins, adhesins. Uh, it can camouflage, of course, but it can also inhibit lots of processes. Um, and looking at the time, I, I may have to skip a few of, of these, but it has a whole arsenal of proteins uh, that can uh, tackle our immune system. Of course, we have our heat-seeking missiles and our antibodies, and uh, the Staphylococcus aureus can deal with these, and we discovered that antibodies uh, can easily be captured by the bacterium on the surface of the bacterium and made uh, completely uh, useless. What we also discovered is that Staph aureus, and this becomes now a bit of a, uh, an aggressive uh, kind of uh, uh, military uh, uh, <laughs> uh, talk, uh, but Staph aureus also makes these inhibitors that can uh, knock out these uh, heat-seeking missiles. And what we discovered, there was one protein in particular that we found uh, acted as a complement activator and actually worked as an anti-missile flare. <clears throat> so our immune system starts to bombard Staphylococcus aureus to try and kill it, and these uh, anti-missile flares stop it from doing that. Uh, and you might think, why is he talking about Staph aureus now? Well, we combined these two technologies. So we've combined the discovery of how our immune system can be boosted by this recognition uh, with the discovery of this staphylococcal protein that can activate these, anti these missiles that can then uh, 
bind to the antigen. Uh, and what we've done is we've stuck these two together as a new vaccine. So our new vaccine looks like this. It has the antigen and this staphylococcal protein that activates the uh, heat-seeking missiles. We can inject this into the body, and the body itself then gets activated. Uh, some of that will activate uh, some of the members of the immune system you've already seen. But you get a coating of this adjuvant on the antigen, which is then recognized by these bone marrow B cells, which then produce lots of antibodies. And that might sound great uh, if we haven't shown that it actually worked. And we have now shown that this works. We have now shown that if you take a TB protein and you inject it into a mouse, you almost get no immune response. And there's no surprise, of course, because TB is very good at hiding from the immune system, and its proteins are also very good at hiding from the immune system. If we then give a booster injection after four weeks, you see some effect of an immune response. If we use our strategy where we tag this TB protein with this protein from Staphylococcus aureus, you can see immediately a much higher immune response. And then as soon as we inject it again, you can see it has a memory of this and the immune response shoots up. Uh, and this is the strategy that we're going to take further. Uh, what we'd like to do in, in the future is uh, optimize the current vaccine, make it more potent. Uh, we're going to further test it uh, in the animals to see what the immunological properties are. And then hopefully in a year or two or three, we can start testing it in cattle. It's easier to test it in cattle first than in humans uh, because, ethical, uh, because of ethical issues with testing in humans. But if, I think 10 years down the line, we can start also testing it in humans. Uh, and of course, we don't have to stick to tuberculosis, although I think that is one of, it's going to be one of my major aims because it's such an important disease. But we could develop this as a potential vaccine conjugate for other infectious diseases, uh, including dengue fever, fever. We've already started doing, working on, on, on dengue fever. But you could also think about flu and HIV as a potential candidate for this. So we really want to, with the current technology, transform this ancient BCG vaccine to make a completely new and much more effective vaccine. Um, this is, uh, of course, not done uh, just by myself. Uh, we do this uh, with collaborators. And the most important collaborators are shown here. Kevin Marchbank in Newcastle, who does all the animal studies, uh, which uh, forms a very important part of, of, of the work we've done. And Andy Watts here at Bath, who uh, is a master at hooking up proteins together. He has technology to chemically link proteins together. 
uh, and he's been uh, very crucial in designing the, this uh, currently effective uh, vaccine in mice. And of course, I would like to thank the BBSOC who've been giving me funding for quite a long time now to push this further, and also the University of Bath who has been funding me uh, for this. Uh, and I also would like to thank you for your attention. And please, if you have any questions, let me know.